So tonight, the text that we're going to settle in on is this text in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus is responding to this expert in the law, and he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, This is one of those texts in Scripture that is really well known, uh, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, whether you believe the Bible or you don't believe the Bible. This is just like one of those stories. It's well known, so it gets a lot of play. Uh, One of the um, kind of fundamental assumptions behind this text that it doesn't say explicitly, but we can just name up front explicitly, is that, that neighborly love, that there's an intricate and like inextricable, like you can't pull it apart, connection between what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and also to practice neighborly love. That's just kind of the baseline assumption that Jesus doesn't really explain. It's just assumed uh, between all parties is that being a disciple of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom also involves love of neighbor. And so the question is, what exactly does that entail? What does love of neighbor entail? And this is an especially important question, for maybe for all time, but at least it just feels like especially important um, for our time. Especially, not the question of whether or not we should love our neighbor, but what does that entail, loving our neighbor? Um, now, if you're anything like me and you've spent enough time in church, you've heard plenty of sermons on the parable um, of the Good Samaritan, and you may have even heard some um, attempts of people to kind of modernize all the characters in the parable in order to, to like kind of provoke us to kind of have a fresh imagination for what it means to hear and obey Jesus's words. Um, there's some tricky, I'm not saying that no one has ever done that well, like people do that well, but as I was preparing for the sermon and, and thinking about how to do that, I was just recognizing how tricky that is. And how tricky it is because how easy it is for us to read this text as a person of privilege. And so often when we modernize um, some of the characters, often what happens is, is um, we, we do get a little bit of fresh imagination for kind of the, the social and, and cultural and ethnic lines that are uh, moving in our time, but often we end up just putting ourselves back in control. And often, like, and naming other characters, like throwing other people under the bus in the process. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to do all of that, but one thing that I think is really important, especially because of our tendency to read this text as, as people of privilege. And by the way, when I say that, I say that, and there's more conversation to have about this, but I, when I say that, I say that not as like, well, you should feel guilty and go whip yourself with lashes because you're a person of privilege. Like, we don't have to hear that. We don't have to name that and recognize that, like in some sort of like, Self, uh, like negating, like I'm such a terrible person, kind of thing. Like we can just name reality. Like God's grace, God's love is big enough for us to just be honest about that reality. So as we name that kind of thing tonight, like it's just reality. Like we can be honest about what we can to the degree that it's true. We can name it. We can be honest about it. We can reckon with it fully within the reality that that the assumption is the best thing that could happen to us today is that we would come face-to-face with a place in our life where we'd have to, like, throw ourselves on God's mercy, right? So it's under that caveat that 
Like, we often read this text as people of privilege. And so the kind of the one main imaginative move that, that I want to hold before us as we jump more into um, how God is speaking to us through this text is just this. Most likely, as we think about who we are in this text, it's important that we see that we are not the Good Samaritan. That's the main kind of imaginative move I want to invite you into tonight. Like, as you consider, as you see yourself, like, in this world that Jesus is describing, that Jesus is inviting us into, we are not the Good Samaritan. Um, There are... um, this isn't the only way, this isn't the only move to make here, and I'm sure you guys could probably think of some imaginative like, things to think about. But if you want to imagine who the Good Samaritan might be in our scenario, uh, a safe bet, at least in my mind, for this is the Good Samaritan could be identified as an illegal Im- immigrant. Say a, a woman who's an illegal immigrant who um, has at great cost and great risk to herself, gone out of her way to see, to draw near to, and to have compassion on someone that for whatever reason, people who look like me failed to have compassion on. In fact, Christ the King, it's, it's good news tonight that we are not the Good Samaritan. It's good news that we are not the good Samaritan. We live in a world, Christ the King, that's desperate for neighborly love. A world longing for restorative touch. For touch that that humanizes, that heals, that forgives, that brings life. As I interact with people in my world, people who are close to me, people in this church, people who, people like my, the person who cuts my hair, like the people in the coffee shop, um, like the other people I interact with, like this just keeps coming to the foreground is that, that we long for neighborly love. I think that like everybody wants neighborly love. The problem is that, that we often get caught in this either or. Either we get caught feeling like we need to create theological and moral boundaries that keep us distanced from others, that build, that build walls and create an us-and-them reality. And if we're not doing that, we feel like maybe the only other option is for us to be saviors and fixers of the less fortunate. So it's like the options are either like we feel like as good Christians we need to create theological and moral boundaries that keep us distanced from others, or that uh, the imagination that we have is to be the savior or the fixer of those who are less fortunate than us. And in doing either of these things, uh, we can do either of these things and feel justified about ourselves either way. Whether we've like correct, correctly and accurately um, defined our theological and moral boundaries, like we feel good about having done that, or whether we have successfully... Um, saved or fixed or helped someone who is less fortunate than us. We feel justified either way. But still remain in bondage to something deeper at work in a world 
that longs for neighborly love, and that's fear and control. And it's in this world, Christ the King, that we proclaim the good news that Jesus brings liberation and new life with his boundary-crossing love. Jesus brings liberation and new life with his boundary-crossing love. He frees us from a life of fear and control that creates barriers and dehumanizes others for a life of neighborly love with those who are both near and near to us and far from us. Jesus frees us from a life of fear and control that creates barriers and dehumanizes others and frees us for a life of neighborly love with those who are both near to us and far. In Luke chapter 10, where our gospel reading is here, uh, there's an, an expert in the law. Um, so this is, this is someone who uh, is, is very theologically astute. Our text calls him a lawyer, um, but, and I'll just keep referring to him as uh, a lawyer. Uh, ahead of time, much apologies to all the attorneys in our midst. I think it's just you, Haynes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm going to keep calling him the lawyer, but when we hear that, a lawyer, like this is, this is someone who is an expert in Torah, an expert in all the theological ins and outs of what... Um, the, the first five books of the Old Testament say. So this is a theological thing, not just like a litigation kind of thing. An expert in the law, and this expert in the law wants to test Jesus, Luke says. And it seems like that this expert in the law wants to test Jesus because he had been triggered by Jesus' talk just a few verses earlier of how God's kingdom was hidden from the intelligent and the wise. Right? So in Luke's gospel, if we read through all of Luke's gospel, Luke especially has focuses in on the degree to which when God's salvation comes to earth in Jesus, it, is, it, is, it flips everything upside down. In fact, that's what Luke even says later on in Acts, is that, that this movement of God is turning the world upside down. When God comes to save the world in Jesus, Jesus is turning the world upside down, flipping social structures as a sign and a foretaste of the liberating, uh, restorative, saving work of God in Jesus. Everything is being flipped on its head. And this work, this kingdom, Jesus says, is being hidden from the wise and intelligent. And apparently this triggers the theological expert in the room. The guy who had been to seminary gets a little triggered by this. And so Jesus responds to him by asking questions. Like even in someone who's coming to Jesus to, to kind of trick him to, to create conflict, Jesus compassionately asks questions. And then he tells a story. And one of the important things to remember about the kinds of stories that Jesus tells, the parables... The kinds of stories that Jesus tells, and this is so crucial for us grasping uh, where we are in this story, is that when Jesus tells parables, most of the time, the main thing that Jesus is telling a parable about is not what people should do or not do, but Jesus is telling a parable about himself. Are you tracking with me? The, the thing that's always in the foreground of why Jesus is telling stories 
is that Jesus wants to provoke people's imagination, to reimagine, to have a new vision for how God is actually saving the world. And so he's painting a a new picture for people to to have a vision so they can actually grasp God's kingdom. So he's usually telling parables about what God is doing through him. They're about him, first and foremost, about him, and and then secondarily about us and how we join Jesus. And so the first most important thing to say about this parable of the Samaritan is that it's, it's about Jesus and his boundary-crossing neighborly love. Part of the way that, that Jesus has been inviting people to join what he's doing, to imagine how God is saving the world, is to see that the way that God is saving the world is that God is not coming through the regular, normal mechanisms of power, the regular, normal, religious structures of, of social and religious power, that rather God is coming, that his salvation is bubbling up from the margins. Remember that all of this story, that Luke's gospel story about how God is saving the world is about this baby that's born in the corners of the empire and a, a pregnant teenager who prays this prayer, who preaches this sermon about how God is casting down the mighty and raising up those who are lowly. Jesus is telling a parable here about, he, about his boundary-crossing love, boundary-crossing neighborly love. That's what's at the heart of this parable. It's about Jesus. And so what Jesus is doing is he's, he's subverting, he's turning the lawyer's question around in order to provoke for the lawyer and anyone else who's hearing what's going on to provoke a new vision of God's kingdom. Not just for them, are you tracking with me? Not just for them to act differently. Not, and Jesus isn't just being a good teacher, like giving people advice about how to get along and be good. Jesus is provoking their imagination for how God is actually saving the world. Because the way, that, the, the way that we live, our lives are always structured by who we believe that God is and how we believe that God is at work in the world. That's what Jesus is up to. And so what's important about this as it relates to the, to the lawyer is that we remember that Jesus tells a parable, a story, about how this Samaritan, this outsider, this person that would have been considered... Um, both theologically and ethnically like the least of these. He's telling a story about how that hated outsider has mercy on someone else, not a story about how a good Jew helps a Samaritan. Are you tracking with me? This is so important for grasping the kind of kingdom that Jesus is inviting the lawyer and us into here. It's not a story about a good Jew that helps a Samaritan, but a, but a story about how this unexpected outsider demonstrates boundary-crossing, costly, gratuitous, risky love. And so what Jesus is doing is telling the story that is transforming the lawyer's position. Transforming the lawyer's relationship to Jesus. And also transforming the lawyer's relationship to others, especially those whom the lawyer might feel like it isn't his business to have to deal with. 
neighborly love, the kind of na- this is important for us to see, is that the kind of neighborly love that Jesus is inviting into us into touches on the nature of power. It touches on the nature of power, particularly ha- the kind. And by power, I mean particularly on um, the degree to which we are able to be in charge over our environment and determine who we're around and how things are supposed to be and who gets say. This neighborly love that Jesus is inviting his disciples into touches on power. And he's inviting this lawyer into a new kind of power. Again, if we're reading, again, just outside of this text, if we're remembering last week about Jesus sending out the 70 disciples, he sends them out how? In a different kind of power. He sends them out like lambs amidst wolves. This neighborly love is going to touch on this question of power and of control and of fear. So Jesus shifts the question from um, the lawyer's question is, who is my neighbor? And he shifts it to, how do I become a neighbor to others? And the surprising answer to this is that we become a neighbor to others. The lawyer becomes a neighbor to others by receiving his life back through the gratuitous loving, unexpected touch of an outsider. I'm going to come back to that. But suffice it to say for now, lock it in, is that neighborly love is about becoming a neighbor to others, and that requires being in a position to receive life from others. This parable that Jesus is teaching is not primarily about how we go and do a better job. It's about what it means to reposition ourselves so that we can be in a position to receive life from others, especially those who we might consider are not the ones who give us life. And so that's important because receiving our life, and remember that, that Jesus is telling this parable about himself. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Have I said that yet? Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. And so that means receiving our life back from Christ, from him, the unexpected outsider, requires taking a position, follow me here, requires taking a position where we surrender the attempt to structure our lives on the basis of fear and control. So much of our lives get structured on the basis of our need to be in charge and on our fear of a variety of different things. So what, what it means to, to receive our life back from this unexpected outsider is the willingness to surrender our attempt to secure our life on the basis of fear and control. Because many folks, and myself included in this, we want to be loving neighbors. We want to participate in neighborly loves. But a neighborly love, but when our lives are structured, not just like the decisions that we make from, from time to time, but our, our lives themselves are structured on the basis of fear and control, that naturally creates barriers and boundaries and walls that need protecting and defending. You tracking with me? If our life is built on the basis of fear and control, then we're going to have walls and barriers and boundaries that need protecting and defending. And that's going to interfere with our ability to receive life from others. And this, Christ the King, is why all of this must start with Jesus. 
why neighborly love must start with Jesus. Jesus comes announcing liberation and new life from fear and control with his boundary-crossing love. And it's that that is the beginning of our ability to participate in neighborly love. And so this, this lawyer, let's go back to this lawyer for just a second. This is a, this is a person, uh, again, who's committed to good theology and a person who's committed, probably genuinely so, to God's justice. This is a person who, who gets the fact that to love God requires love of neighbor. Like, he repeats back to Jesus what Jesus has said earlier in the gospel when someone questions him about how the law is summarized. He repeats it back. Well, you love God and you love neighbor. But we see, and Luke tells us, that the lawyer wants to justify himself. Because the lawyer is probably afraid of the implications of Jesus' message. Because if Jesus' message, his whole message that's embodied in his life, if his whole message is true about this boundary-crossing love, about all the outsiders and the people on the margins being in, then that means that his program... His, the way that his life is structured to defend and to have power and control, that, that's going to seem pretty scary to him. So that's probably where this, this just self-justification comes from. And so what Jesus is inviting him out of here is this life where, that believes that, that life in God's kingdom requires boundary keeping. That's what he would have assumed as, as a, a good religious scholar of the first century, is that life in God's kingdom requires boundary keeping. And this kind of of boundary keeping about who is in and who is out, who is a part of us and who is not a part of us. They would have read Leviticus 19, the, the love your neighbor, which is what he quotes. They would have read that as just applying to other people in Israel, other Jews. And so he would have considered that life in God's kingdom requires boundary keeping, but boundary keeping can only be done from a place of power and control. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is inviting him out of here. Because boundary keeping for him is not just the wrong thing to do, but it's actually bad for him. Do you see that? Because what, remember, what initiates this lawyer's question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so what Jesus is saying is this life constructed on the basis of fear and control and power, it's not just that it's the wrong thing to do, it's that it actually prevents you from being a participant in, from receiving God's eternal kind of life, from abundant life. It's actually bad for him. It's actually bad for us to be in uh, control and have the kind of power that's about being in charge of over, uh, over others, to have the kind of privilege that's able to always determine who's able to be in and out of our lives. So Jesus tells uh, the lawyer to go and do likewise. So this is a critical point uh, to press into here, because what Jesus cannot mean is that by go and do likewise, there's some ambiguity to this, is what Jesus doesn't mean is that the lawyer should then go out and be like the good Samaritan. Just go and show mercy to people. Because remember that the lawyer already knows that he's supposed to show mercy to people. And if all the lawyer is supposed to do is to go out and show mercy to people, then that means that he actually doesn't need Jesus. And that means that he can continue on with a way of life that does not have to encounter, that does not have to get mixed up with someone like a Samaritan. 
And so what Je- remember, remember the shocker for uh, this lawyer isn't, because you remember his response. He says, Jesus says, who is, who is the one who is the neighbor here? And, and the lawyer says, he can't even utter. The lawyer can't even utter the Samaritan, right? The lawyer says, the one who showed mercy. Because the shocker for the lawyer isn't the show mercy part. The shocker for the lawyer is the Samaritan part. He can't even say those words. So he settles for the one. The one who showed mercy. And so what that means is, what that means for this lawyer, if all that's true, if it's the Samaritan who's the one who's showing mercy, then God's kingdom is not what he expected, and he has not been availing himself to to God's kingdom. And so what Jesus is inviting him to do, to go and to do likewise, is to assume a posture where you are dependent on receiving your life back from the hospitality of an outsider. Jesus is inviting the lawyer to see himself as the man in the ditch. That his life is actually dependent on the unexpected, gratuitous, dangerous touch from an outsider. Again, remember, because Jesus is the Good Samaritan. And if Jesus is the Good Samaritan, that transforms the lawyer's relationship to Jesus, his relationship to fear and to control and to power, and it also changes the status of the Samaritan and thus the lawyer's relationship to the Samaritan. It humanizes the Samaritan in every single way and thus changes the lawyer's relationship also to the Samaritan, which means that for him to participate in God's eternal, abundant kind of life means being in a position where he is connected in in an intimate relationship with people who are different than him. Man, there's so much going on here. So let's just, let's skip to this question. Who, who are we? Who are we in this parable? I just encourage you guys to wrestle with that question. Like as you get compassionately curious with where you are, with what Jesus is saying to you, wrestle with that question. Who are we in this parable? At the very least, this is, this, is what we can, this is what we can track here. At the very least, neighborly love means for us that there is no social, ethnic, national, or religious boundary marker that can trump the call to see others with compassion to come near and at great risk and cost offer restoration and healing to others. There is no social, ethnic, national, or religious boundary that gets to... Um, be in the foreground for us that would prevent us from doing that. At the very least, that's what that means. But remember, remember, this parable is not about a good Jew who helps a poor Samaritan. So God is doing, God is is making space for that. At the very least, we can do that. But there's also more. And the more for us is this, is that God's abundant, eternal life, his healing for us, opens for us by laying down our fear laying down our control, laying down the need to be in charge, laying down the kind of privilege where we get to determine who our neighbors are. Do you guys see that that's like a kind of privilege? That asking the question, who is our neighbor, like assumes that we have the ability to determine who is in and out of our lives? So God's healing opens up for us as we lay those down and as we connect with those who are unlike us. Open to receiving God's life. That is neighborly love. 
Again, and we talked a little bit about this last week, what we're doing is we, for, as a church, as we think about this, what it means for us as a church, we're shifting out of the mindset of how do we get more people to come in? How do we get more people to become a part of our church? To shifting to, like, rather, how do we as a community become the kinds of people who, who mobilize around connecting with those who are unlike us, because we believe that Jesus is actually present and at work in the people who are not like us, and that God's grace and forgiveness and healing and new life is out there in that situation. So our response today does not begin with like a call to go out and save and fix all those who are less fortunate, but with the surrender of our fear and control to the cross. That's where it begins today, Christ the King. It begins with the surrender of our fear and control at the cross. But the point is that we don't need to get all of that sorted out before we go and connect with others. That there is this mysterious reality that Jesus talks about in the Gospels. That he is genuinely present to us and with us as we meet with people who are, who are strangers to us. And so the question for us is, how do we organize our lives in such a way? How do we lay down worldly power and fear and control so that we are bumping into people who are different from us? How do we do that? How do we organize our lives in such a way that we're bumping into people who would be considered maybe an outsider? Just a really, a really quick story. Um, I, I talk a lot about Henry Nouwen, um, but he is such an icon for me of a lot of what it means to embody this kind of neighborly love. Um, and I was reminded recently um, that part of Henry Nouwen's journey is that he left a really prestigious um, professorship at Harvard, and, a, like, as a, and it was a really popular like, traveling speaker, and he left that in order to become a part of a community um, uh, with adults with disabilities. And what now and um, so for now and like that is a that is a releasing of of fear and control and power and status in order to be connected with people who are different than him. But what's interesting is is that when now and talks about what that's like, he talks about it in terms of not just that he was able to help other people who were the least of these, but the fact that he actually discovered healing God's healing for his life from them. And so the question is, like, what's, just, what's one small way that you guys can, that we as a community can step into that tonight? Jesus brings liberation and new life with his boundary-crossing love. He frees us from a life of fear and control, for a life of neighborly love with those who are both neighbors who are both near to us and far from us. So I invite you to respond. Uh, you can pray this.